Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, we have an interview for you with Dr. Virginia Scharf. Dr. Scharf is an emeritus professor of history from the University of New Mexico and has written and edited many books about women in the West, as well as curating many museum exhibits at the Autry Museum in Los Angeles. This is a wide-ranging conversation where we touch on many of her intellectual projects that cover a breadth of topics that I know will be of interest to you. Please enjoy our conversation. Can you describe the historiography of women in the West? Kind of taking a moment to delineate how different groups of women, ethnic groups, national groups have been talked about in the literature prior to the work that you've done. So really the historiography of women in the West begins in the 19th century when you get epic big studies of, you know, anecdotal stories about one heroic woman or another, a heroic doctor, a heroic homesteader, women in the women's suffrage movement. And these are things that were mostly written by white women a few memoirs by women of color, but those are going to be discovered later. And then really starting in the early 20th century, you begin to see women writing memoirs. Actually, 19th century, the first big memoirs that everybody read. I, when I, I started studying Western women in the 1980s, 1970s, kind of reading anecdotally, and you're starting to see memoirs like Isabella Bird's A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains or Lily Casey Klasner's My Girlhood Among Outlaws, which is about being a cattle rancher in southern New Mexico during the Lincoln County War. So you've got these kind of memoirs and also women writing about the advent of women's suffrage, which takes place first in the West. And that's been written about a whole lot and by a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. But the first part of this literature really speaks to the desire of the United States and of white Americans to write a progressive narrative about the conquest of the West. So bringing the light of civilization, bringing education, bringing equality for all under the law, that kind of thing. And so that's the underpinning narrative that you get. And what that does is erase particularly the lives of indigenous people, but then also the lives of anybody who's not white and, and not engaged in this pro project of colonizing the continent. And so what happens over the course of more historians and more citizens getting involved in writing about women in the American West is that that literature begins to broaden. So you start with this progressive tale of the conquest of the country in the name of liberty. And then you get kind of a more critical take on, well, what does this really mean? What kind of hardships are there for some of the people, even some of the people involved in this colonization? Why was homesteading hard on women and children? And you also get what I would call in the 1980s, a kind of women of color critique. So they're starting to be people writing surveys of Western, the history of women in the American West. Then you have Chicanas, Black women, with AAPI women saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, we were there, we're going to write about our history, we need to contest the idea that the history of women is a history of white women. And so by the 1980s, you have people like Valerie Matsumoto, Vicky Ruiz, Peggy Pascoe, really insisting that the history of women in the American West be a multicultural history. And I think we've moved kind of from an idea that we'll tell all these discrete stories to the idea that all of these things kind of add up to a history of colonization and resistance to colonization. And that that has become kind of the main framework in which many of us are working. And so stories like the story of woman suffrage in the American West look really different than they did when people first started writing about it as the March of Progress and Equality in the 19th century. You know, we got the vote for women first because the West is a liberated and, and a a liberated place and a place where everybody can be what they want and have an opportunity to start over. In fact, that was a story that was really about that conquest of the West in the name of a white republic. Mm. So I've got two kind of follow-ups. Sometimes you'll hear 
people describe why something hasn't been written about just in saying that there's just not the source material material there, but it's clear in what you're describing that the source material is there. It sounds like the source material is more, you know, memoirs, private diaries, things like that. So maybe what we might call, I don't know, domestic sources, if you will, maybe not newspapers. But then I just did a an episode on Mary Ellen Pleasant, who was very much in the newspapers yes. and very public figure. And so yeah. maybe that's not the a fair description of the source material. But then secondarily, based on what you're saying, is it more useful is is looking through a racial and ethnic lens more useful to understanding women in the West? Because you're talking about colonizer and colonized. Is it is the connection between women of different ethnic groups less important than their connection to that ethnic group that you're describing? Does that question make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And I'm so I want to answer first about source material and then talk a little bit about the whole question of like writing ethnically specific histories. And so I think you're 100% right about not thinking that women are absent from conventional historical sources. They're all over historical sources. The newspapers, when I first started writing master's thesis in, in, 1980, I I used almost exclusively newspapers for the work that I did on woman suffrage in Wyoming. And the newspapers are absolutely full of this kind of stuff. And, and it's as plain as it can be, including stories about women of color. So they're in the conventional places. If you start reading any kind of quantitative stuff, including the census, including any kind of government documents about, for example, territorial Wyoming, and you see quantitative things about who's who, how many Arapahoes are there, how many Shoshones are in the territory, how do what do we do about them? That stuff is very, very rich. And the other thing I would say about newspapers is very often we don't notice the things that are a little bit off to the side. So you're reading an editorial column and you don't realize that where you should be looking, for example, would be in the advertisements. And so I wrote an essay about women and reproductive rights in the West. And there would be a column from the Emporia, Kansas, Appeal to Reason, which was a socialist newspaper in Kansas, about how women and socialism are connected by nature because they're natural nurturers and they're lovers of children. And so they have this kind of outward orientation to the world. But right on the side are ads for things like curing, take this tonic to cure bearing down sensations. So there's an ad for an abortifacient right next to this column extolling motherhood. So you've got to read your sources, I think, in a more inclusive way. And that's something that we've learned as historians of women. The second thing I would say to answer your question about should we understand women more in terms of their ethnic affiliation rather than in terms of their gender? I would say yes, but we need to understand that the category of women is not a unitary thing, that women have different experiences based on ethnicity, regional location, and class experience. But I think that there are some things that cut across those categories that unite the experience of women because of gender. And I think For example, when we talk about reproductive rights, the struggle for reproductive rights over history has been different, say, for Black women and white women in the American South. But in fact, if you do things like pass extraordinary restrictive laws that say women should be go to jail or be put to death if they seek any kind of reproductive health care, that's going to affect all women regardless of race. Hmm. Let's jump right into one of your early books about women painters in the West. I just did a wonderful conversation with one of the curators of the Museum of Art about Adeline Kent, who's just a wonderful little known artist. She was known in her time, but less now. And I've had, there's another exhibit coming out in the fall that we're about to preview an episode about that exhibit. So there's just a lot of great work being done to kind of bring back women artists of the 20th century and before that back to our modern eyes. But to start, what are some of the most common myths that were promulgated about women painters in the West? I think that first, the first most important myth is that there weren't a lot of them. 
And I think what we learned and when when we were working on that book, I was I wrote the introduction for that book. At that time, I wasn't yet working with the Autry Museum. That was my first project with them. I had a wonderful time working with Pat Trenton, who is the editor of that book and who is just a kind of towering art historian in the history of women artists, of Western artists, and of women in the American women painters in the American West. So first there weren't any. Well, it, well, there was Georgia O'Keeffe, but she was an exception to the rule. And what I think Pat and other art historians at that time did is to say, well, wait a minute, everywhere we look, there they are. And this is kind of a theme of the history of women in the American West. Everywhere you look, there they are. And we can talk more about this when we talk about some of the kind of other work that, that I've done. But so they're everywhere. Are they only painting sentimental subjects? Are they only painting domestic subjects? Well, no. I mean, some of them are painting these kind of rip-roaring pictures of, you know, men taming the West or whatever. They are painting in every kind of school of art that you can imagine. There are abstract painters in the American West that are, who happen to be women who are doing the, some of the same kind of work that men in the modern art movement are doing. And so you find women in the period from, and, and the book covered 1890 to 1945, doing all kinds of work in all kinds of places and work of extraordinary quality. The problem, of course, was that in the in conventional art historical institutions, women's painting has been denigrated, erased, lost, ignored, so those are the kinds of pressures that women painter had women painters had to push against in order to get their work collected and recognized. Mm. One criticism that I read about that book is that it focused quite a bit on European women as opposed to other ethnic groups. Was that intentional just to avoid it from being a doorstop or is that something if there was a revised edition that would change? I think if there was a revised edition it would change and I think that one of the wonderful developments of the years that I've spent as a historian of women, I will say, I look back at my own work from this period. And I think it was really, again, you know, there was a kind of an assumption that um, Europe, European American and European women are at the center of history and other women, women of color, women, working class women, women working in kind of obscure rural places that they really are kind of sidelines in the story. And I think what we've learned is we can't write a faithful history of the United States or of women or of the West if we have an understanding that a particular group of people should be central to the story rather than one set of actors in a more dynamic story. And talking about now the kind of the thematic content of their art, was their art con constrained by gender roles or certain themes of their art or was or did they produce the same kind of art that western painters were producing at that time well i mean i think you can say that some of the paintings i think about things like grace hudson's paintings of native mothers and children and these are sentimental domestic subjects but i think in a certain way you could say that well california painters of the time or western painters of the time had ways of sentimentalizing particular subjects so if you look at a, a remington painting for example a painting of of horses rearing or of a you know some kind of a fight between native warriors and american military or american cowboys there is a sentimental dimension to that. The difference is that I think I'm going to float a theory here now that maybe will lead to another part of our discussion, but there's an, a, a kind of tendency to portray women as being still, as not moving at all. A picture of, and I mean, having had two children of my own and now being a grandmother with very wiggly grandsons, even a mother with a baby on her lap, that is a portrait in kinetic action. A baby is never still. So for Grace Hudson to be painting these subjects, I mean, how do you get them to even stand still? And there's a kind of hyper real understanding about women being always fixed in place and men being always in motion. And I think that's really where you see a gender difference in particularly Western art. Let's focus on one artist before we switch gears here. One that 
I appreciated quite a bit and who I find interesting is Kate Corey. And I, I love the subject matter, but I'm curious what kind of ideas of indigenous people and the West we walk away from. If we're looking at her art, I like to think about what is the art telling us about the world that they are inhabiting? Okay, so could you just refresh my memory about Kate Corey a little? Oh bit? well, we don't we don't have to go there. If if, if that's okay. I just picked an artist that I liked, but you know, all right, that's I re- fine. I, 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 recognize- was, I was getting her mixed up with the woman who painted dams in Washington, and oh, so no, she she does she did specifically well. At least the art that I could find was art of like indigenous women quilting or not quilting, but you know, you, doing fabric work. But let me let me ask the question a different way that maybe is a better way to ask it. What vision do we get of the West in women artists that differs from the vision that we get from male artists of the West? Is it less violent? Is it more? What what do we get? I think it really depends. And I'll give you an example of the Pueblo artist, Pablita Velarde, right? Who is somebody who did, we used a lot of her stuff in our Homelands project. As it happened, she was my next and my neighbor three doors down for like 15 years. And so I got to know her a little bit, but she was a muralist. She did a lot of motel murals and her paintings tend to be very stately and very static paintings of Pueblo life. And in many ways, they resemble the paintings that were coming out of the Institute of American Indian Art and the Indian Art School in Santa Fe, where both male and female painters were being trained. But I think that, you know, they're a little bit different in part because they depict women in ceremonial roles that are where they are, you know, really taking their ceremonial roles seriously. And and it reflects the kind of leadership that roles that women had in Pueblo society. And so in a way, the idea of women painters are domestic, men painters are more, you know, out in the world kind of thing falls apart as you as you suggested with your earlier question it falls apart if you look at pueblo artists and you can see that in in many different kind of i think native women artists painting today and i i'm going to have a little brain problem here for a moment because the person that i really wanted to talk about and now i've forgotten her name for the moment but you know someone who does monumental epic kind of sculptures that are of these kind of you know real street figures or just people doing kind of cartoonish art. There's there's such an extraordinary diversity. People who are drawing on punk vocabularies or on hip hop stuff or whatever. I I think it's really cool to see the diversity of of women's art. And it's not just painting. It's women working in multimedia, sculptors, people doing performance pieces. It's really remarkable to see that kind of efflorescence of work. And it's it's fun to follow. Yeah. And it's interesting. I wonder too, if there's some similarities. I just interviewed Kim Bancroft, who was writing about her ancestor and his wives who did much writing for him, but were little credited. Uh, And she was talking in particular about some work that his second wife had done on on Mormon or I guess Latter-day Saints, I, I don't know what the term is today, but wives where male historians weren't able to access them in the way that women were. And so you got to see this glimpse of this world because of their gender that male historians weren't able to access. And so I, I just wonder too, if that has some kind of parallels with art in the way that women see the world and can see things that the male gaze does not see, if that makes sense. Well, I think I think there may be something to that just in terms of having a, a sense that something that looks peaceful and domestic from the outside looks like chaos if you're looking at it from the inside. And I think back to I've also done work on Thomas Jefferson and I think about his idea that he would write home and he would talk about he would be in Philadelphia or France or somewhere and talking about, I really miss the tender and tranquil amusements of domestic life. That was his phrase. And the women who were back at home minding and women of his multiracial family, I would add, basically trying to ensure that everything kept going. They are butchering hogs in the middle of January. They're making beer. They are dealing with floods and fires and all kinds of miscarriages and and every kind of calamity you can imagine. And And they're saying things like, you know, it really isn't tender and tranquil around here. We're dealing with a tremendous challenging situation 
And I think you really don't understand it. And I guess that would be kind of where the fundamental friction between a kind of external male perspective on things and how things look from the inside comes to play. Let's switch gears to your book, Homelands, How Women Made the West. Is this a book of environmental history? I would say absolutely it is that because our whole point is to say that if you think of women as being actors in history, history looks different. And so we can't think of the West as an empty place where a lone white heroic male comes to discover or to explore, but as a place that's already fully inhabited and where there are people, groups of people, male, female, children, people who are two-spirit people. So gender is a little bit more fluid in many of the many kind of indigenous cultures. They're already transforming the environment and they're working with what they have in order to be able to create a desirable life within the confines of their environment. And so we see people as actors with things that are not human from at this point, 23,000 years and counting thinking about how to work with what they have at hand in order to claim a home place in the American West. And so the timeline of American history is extremely different. And we wanted to look at the different ways in which people have claimed, contested, and reclaimed home places in three places in the American West, in the in New Mexico, where I live now, it, on the kind of front range Great Plains interface in, in Colorado and then up in, in the Puget Sound area and think with dirt where we come from, transportation along that front range corridor, and then with water. And so we were thinking with three different kind of elements to try to think about how people transform their home places. Yeah, let's dig into the home because that was kind of the most fascinating thing for me in the book is this kind of re- redefinition or reconceptualization of the home. What, How was the home understood before the book? What was the common discourse about it? And what did you seek to alter in that perception? I think we wanted to expand the idea of a home to a home place. So home can be a very sentimental understanding of a dwelling place, tends to be interior. It barely even takes into account the fact that a dwelling, a building has a garden around it at a minimum, or very often throughout human history is implicated with fields and animals and and water sources and those sorts of things. And so we kind of went outward from that and just said, okay, well, what does a home place look like if it's a gathering ground? in 17th century New Mexico, where you're trying to figure out what kind of roots, what kind of seasonal gathering crops you can get, what kind of animals you're going to be able to trap, what kind of fishing is available to you. And so those elements come into play when you're talking about creating a home place, a place that people can claim and feel relatively secure and know how to sustain themselves rather than just like a single dwelling place. And it takes into account the idea that for some people, home is going to be a seasonal thing. So if you think about in the wintertime, you're going to be kind of pulling in. The, I think about Puget Sound, where during the wintertime, people are inside of their dwellings and they're and they're repairing their nets and they're living on dried fish and they're doing that kind of thing, as opposed to out in the summertime where you can go out and you can gather a lot of a lot of shellfish. You can do really great fishing. You can dry those fish. And so it's a you have to have migration that's part of your creation of a home space. Hmm. So home is really what it takes to live in, you know, so it's, it's everything that you touch. I mean, because I think the association is home equals house in people's minds, but that's, that's not taking into account the surrounding territory, not taking into account how you're altering the land to fit your lifestyle. I think my brain has been so rewired by doing this kind of work that I didn't even use the word house when I was trying to describe what a home was. Yeah. Now, I'm a little offended. You did not cover California in this book. You covered territories <laughs> around it. This is a California history podcast after all, but you know we can't go back and revise that book now to include California. But what lessons can we take from the book that we can apply to California? California has a varied landscape, lots of different territories from you know Central Valley, arid, 
grasslands to coastal regions. Are there certain lessons that we can apply to understand California history a little better? I think one of the main lessons that we can take is to think about the ways in which indigenous homelands in California, there was an attempt to kind of eradicate them. And then indigenous people in California are really claiming in a very strong way those homelands and the ways in which they have made a living on them and trying to claim the rights that appertain to that. So I think, for example, about the you know Southern California nations that claim Catalina Island as a homeland and as the kind of the the spiritual heart of a much broader homeland that that goes on to the mainland. And so you always think of Southern California history, indigenous history in that way as something that tells us that it begins with a kind of a maritime life cycle, but then moves on to the land and then claims different places in the land that are still attached to the water. And I think that helps me understand a lot about California. I think my friend Phil Phil Deloria at Harvard said something about, because we've been consulting with him about our most recent project for the Autry. And he said, yeah, you know, if you could tell the history of Southern California from indigenous occupation forward, it would always have been a, a, a story of kids hanging out on the beach. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I, I thought that was just such a cool way to to think about, you know, what, how there's a kind of through line here about where people live, that play is always involved in it, as well as the kind of work that it takes. And, and that social life is as much about that kind of conviviality and and leisure as as much as it is also about just getting a, a, a life and, and making a living. I was definitely one of those kids on the beach. Let's keep in motion and talk about the next book, which involves motion, which was 20,000 Roads. Why do we only imagine men in motion? I think that in in a way, the difference between stillness and movement is a kind of fundamental dividing line for how we understand the world in gender terms. So if there is a person who is still, we think of that person as feminine and a, a person that is in motion as having that kind of masculine dynamism that is associated with men. And so to be still is to be feminized, to be in motion is to be masculinized. And I think that's probably more of a deep-seated myth that constructs our understanding of how people act in the world than it is a historical description of how people are in the world. And so, as I said, you know, a woman with a baby on her lap and everybody's jiggling around all the time in the same way, you know, a man sitting in a library contemplating great thoughts or Thomas Jefferson trying to decide how to write the next word of the Declaration of Independence, that's a pretty still moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, but we don't think of that as a feminized moment because, of course, you know, here comes the document and momentous things happen. So I, I think it's in many ways, rather than a historical description, it is a an ideological, philosophical, cultural construct. Yeah. Um, well, and I would say that when I, I, you know, have one of those step counters on my watch and when I'm at work, my steps are there's much less steps, but I'm at home doing various domestic things around the house, vacuuming, whatever it might be. I, I look at my step count, it's almost double. So I think, you know, maybe it's this idea that motion is going to somewhere else and that uh-huh. if you're moving circuitously around a house, that's maybe not motion, but maybe we're getting a little too uh, nitty gritty here. Um, I don't think you're wrong. I just want to say, I wrote an article called Man and Nature, Sex Secrets of Environmental History, which was the the opening of a book that I edited about gender and environmental history. And at one point I weighed my groceries and I thought about the kinetic energy that it takes to actually just go grocery shopping, take things off the shelf, put them onto the counter, take them off the counter, carry them, put them in the car, take them out of the car and then unpack everything and put them away. And for a family of four, I realized that women did like two tons of lifting every year, just lifting their groceries before they ever even made dinner. So that kind of work, you know, if you actually count it up, but this is the kind of thing that just gets classed as reproduction rather than production. Mm -hmm. And so it's never accounted for. And so, yeah, I figure it's, I also have a step counter on my watch and I figured making dinner is about 750 steps. 
sounds reasonable to me. Let's talk about maybe my favorite part of the book, which was the second section on Sacagawea's real trail. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't even call this revisionist history because I didn't even know any of the many of the factual details that were included in the book. Can you describe what the real trail is? Well, what I would say about Sacagawea or Sacagawea, or we're not really 100% sure how her name was pronounced because she was not literate and didn't spell things. Is it like Cicero versus Cicero? We're just kind of unsure. We just don't know. And I mean, we rely a lot on Meriwether Lewis for that spelling. And and he and, and Clark were notoriously bad spellers. So <laughs> we don't know whether it was a, a Shoshone name, whether it was a Mandan name. So we'll just call her Sacagawea or Sacagawea. And, and you can take your choice. And there are really two main narratives, or there have been two main narratives about her life. One is that she died young, had been sickly all of her life and died in like 1812 at the Mandan villages because she had died of a putrid fever. And there's very fragmentary evidence about that. But there's a much longer story that oral historians had documented that had her finding her way, running away from her French voyageur, French Canadian voyageur husband, making her way to Comanchean speaking people in Oklahoma, living with them for a while, and then going up and living into the 1890s on the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming. And so this oral tradition among indigenous people is what really has, you know, galvanized a debate between should her grave be a place that is marked on the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming or should it be in the Mandan villages? And now there's yet a third story by a Mandan Hidatsa group that is basically saying, well, the woman that went west with, with Lewis and Clark is actually not uh, either the woman who is claimed to have been the Shoshone woman or a woman that the Mandans have claimed, but it's our grandmother Eagle woman. And now we're going to tell you the oral history of eagles. So my point about this is, look, you know, we're really not ever going to, I I would say we're never going to be able to nail down a kind of crystalline clear biography of Sacagawea in the way that we like to imagine biography is writable from written documents, because she's she's working out of sight of who she, whoever she is, is working out of sight of documentary eyes and literary eyes most of her life. But what these competing stories tell us is wherever uh, Western eyes have seen empty space with nobody moving through it, there are many, many women doing unbelievably cool and interesting and challenging and dangerous and frightening and heroic and sometimes awful things. So it's it it alerts us to inhabited landscape of women in motion, many of whom are doing things that will never be able to be traced by these kind of documentary records. Mm. Another fascinating character from the book is Fabiola Cabeza de Baca Gilbert. Can you share why you chose to write about her? Why was she included in the book? And is it true that she invented the fried taco shell? <laughs> I probably I I don't want to get into the did she invent the fried taco shell because I will get so much hate mail from all over New Mexico <laughs> people telling me about their abuelita, abuelita yeah, yeah, yeah. you know invented the the real taco shell but what I will say is I wrote about her in part because I wanted to write about someone to whom driving was integral to their life and. Fabiola Cabeza de Baca Gilbert was a home extension agent. She had grown up on a ranch in eastern New Mexico, went to what became New Mexico State University in Las Cruces, got herself a degree in home economics, became a state home extension agent, wrote a lot of columns in the Santa Fe newspaper about kind of how to how to run your household, how to cook food, wrote cookbooks, but lived her life on the road road doing this home extension work, doing canning demonstrations, doing home visits in Pueblo and Hispano and Anglo households all over New Mexico, drove thousands and thousands and thousands of miles. And when she was a young home extension agent, her car stalled out on some train tracks and got hit and she lost a leg in this accident 
had a, a horrendous recovery, but when she did recover, she had a car outfitted so that she could drive with one leg and continued with her home extension work. And so to me, this is like a really good example of, first of all, how adaptive technology helps everyone. Because this is somebody who is very, very ingenious in making sure that she could continue her work, but also the kind of work she did. And she had a real respect for the traditions of, for the particularly the food preservation traditions of different cultures in New Mexico. So she was being charged with the United States Home Extension Service with bringing the virtue of canning to the, to the pueblos or to rural Hispano communities. And she would get out there and she'd be like, look, you know, they don't have any, they don't have gas stoves. They don't have electricity. These are people for whom preservation of foods involves like picking the chilies and hanging them up and having a restaurant on the front porch that you can, you can take out or drying beans, that kind of thing. They're not necessarily going to be people for whom canning is really the best food preservation strategy. And I have high respect she said, for the kind of work that they do with with what they have at hand. Mm. Now, there's another character I want to talk about who slightly different context, Pamela Desberes. Did I say that right? Pamela Debar, yeah. yeah Pamela Debar. How did how does she alter our perception of, quote, groupies? I have an image in my mind from that movie, Almost Famous. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does she alter that perspective? Well, for one thing, she was a writer. And so, and a really wonderful writer and a remarkably witty person and somebody who was writing her whole life. And I think we think of groupies as being stupid, you know, just like deluded by their desire to be noticed by men. There's certainly, I mean, having grown up in that era, what I can say is the idea of the search for the boyfriend who's going to make your life whole was, was very much a kind of cultural iconic status for girls growing up in that period. And I mean, attaching yourself to a rock star, what could be what could be more of an embodiment of that particular cultural impetus? But with Pamela Debar, what you see is an extraordinarily entrepreneurial person, someone who kind of rises in the groupie hierarchy to where she's hanging out with people like the Rolling Stones and the Who. But she's writing the whole time. She is writing letters. She is keeping a memoir. The, the work that she does as a writer is absolutely extraordinary. And she documents this and then finally sells her first book, which was called I'm with the Band, Memoirs of Groupie, which is, to me, a document of Southern California life that is unlike any other. It's just a wonderful kind of window on the vibrancy of the Laurel Canyon rock culture, of the world of itinerant hotel rooms and and concerts and the world that rock stars inhabited. It's witty. It acknowledges the pain and the damage that drugs did in that world. At the same time, it's also the story of a survivor. And I just had a tremendous respect for and delight in the work she did as a as a writer who just kept up with that career as as much and as long as she could. Is a book similar to, I haven't read it, to kind of the genre of Joan Didion's White Album, kind of in that vein, or a, a, a different voice or different perspective? Really a different voice and perspective, because I think that Didion is, has always struck me as someone who, she could be funny, but that was not her intent. Her intent was to be as dead serious as possible and to expose the kind of dark underbelly of... California particularly, but really anything that she wrote about. And whereas for Debar, I think there's more playfulness. There's a lot of sly verbal wit. There is a different type of observation that is more grounded in a vernacular sensibility rather than a kind of formal writing tradition, which you get from Didion. So, I mean, maybe if, you know, Didion had dropped a little more acid or something. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, that would, maybe that would have made a difference or maybe not. Who knows? Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the Civil War in the West now. I've recently interviewed Glenna Matthews and Elliot West about the subjects, kind of Civil War, Gilded Age. Both had strong opinions about how the Western theater of the Civil War has been interpreted or potentially neglected. When you put together the collection in 2015, what were the gaps you were trying to fill and how did you think about what topics to include? 
I think rather than thinking in terms of gaps that we wanted to fill, I think because I think that people like Gary Gallagher, other historians of the Civil War always would say, well, the West didn't matter because there were really no major battles there. And it wasn't really the battleground that was being fought over. The South had purported to secede and and the battles, that was the main battleground because it had to be secured for the United States at the time. But what I think we wanted to try to demonstrate is that the Civil War was fought as much about American expansion and the terms of American expansion into the West as it was about securing the South. So the South really wanted wanted to create a slave republic all the way to the Pacific. And I think that was one of the themes that we wanted to make sure got addressed in the book. And I think Bill Deverell did a particularly good job with that in in his essay. Well, Bill Deverell does a great job with everything and everything he writes and 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 it's poetry in motion when you're reading him and and wonderful historical research and great insight, writing about the descendants of John Brown in 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 the Southwest. But I think we also wanted to make sure that the indigenous presence and the importance of indigenous resistance to American colonization to what the Civil War is about. And 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 to make it clear, and I think Elliot does a wonderful, has always done a wonderful job with this, make it clear that Reconstruction is, is as much a part of the story as the, the, the years of the war itself. That the actually the foreshadowing of the war in Kansas was something that we wanted to show because to show the way in which the Civil War is really going to be fought about expansion. So John Earl, John Earl's essay about that is really critical, I think, to the kind of work that we were doing. Okay. Last topic before we end with books. Let's talk a little bit about the Autry Museum, this wonderful place in Southern California. I want more and more people to visit. Can we spend some time talking about the relationship between academia and museums? How do we foster and create more of a direct connection between these two institutions so that they can have kind of a generative effect on each other? What a wonderful question. I've been fortunate enough to work with the Autry for, I cannot believe it, 20 years. And during that time, we have done a lot of connecting of particularly UCLA and USC, but also the University of New Mexico to the museum in a very close collaboration. And so there's been a lot of flow back and forth. Steve Aaron, who is the president of the Autry right now, came out of academia, but had been really involved with public history for a very, very long time. I have always had kind of one foot in the camp of the academy and one foot in the camp of of public facing history. And so for me, it was kind of natural. I, I never wanted to be limited only to an audience of my students, particularly when I've written books. I've tried to write books that I think will appeal to a general public. The opportunity to work in a museum was really, really exciting to me because you're, you are doing research and writing and kind of creating spaces that are really aimed at a much broader audience, even than just a reading audience. So think about fourth graders doing field trips out there. How do you explain really complicated historical moments or historical trends to fourth graders Mm. and how do you write labels for them? How do you create a space that will engage them? What about their grandparents that might be along on the field trip? How are they reacting to this? So really getting a tighter sense of the potential for bringing the best kind of historical knowledge and analysis to a much broader audience to me was always really exciting. And, and we've been very lucky. I've worked with Steve since I first started at the Autry. And I think we've been lucky to have a whole group of friends, people like Elliot West and Bill Deverell and um, Ann Hyde and others that that we've, Heather Richardson has, has done some interviews with us. So we've had really wonderful collaborators who take seriously the need for historians to speak to as broad an audience as possible. You kind of already answered this a little bit, but I want to dig a little bit more in in, in talking about the challenges of creating an exhibit where you have to be able to speak to a retiree and a fourth grader. In some ways, I think those challenges are great for academics in forcing them to use common language, but I'm sure 
you've had experiences where you're where you were putting something together and you weren't sure exactly how to reach everybody if you could. So can you talk a little bit about the challenges of creating an exhibit? And then who are the typical demographics that come into the Autry Museum? So the Autry Museum, well, obviously there are people who love Gene Autry, right? Yeah. So they're a kind of Western, they're cowboy buffs. There are people who love Western art. We've got a really great Western art collection, both contemporary and historical Western art. Others who will come in and, and use our museum. We In 2003, the Autry merged with the Southwest Museum, mm -hmm. which was a museum that had the second largest collection in the United States right after the Smithsonian of Native American objects. So that collection is now forming the bulk of the collection of the Autry. And so uh, more and more people are coming to see more and more of the kind of exhibitions we do on Native art history and culture. So that's a second constituency, but get a lot of school field trips, a lot of kind of community group field trips and retirees. And we have special exhibitions like the master's exhibition, which is on from the month of January every year, where you get collectors of Western art who come in there. We would love to, to broaden our our visitorship so that people who, for example, go to the Hammer Museum or go to the Getty or whatever, that they think of the Autry as a place that's going to have exciting art exhibitions, exciting cultural moments. And so that's something that's kind of a work in progress. It's been seen as the kind of cowboy space. And there's nothing wrong with that pop culture space. But I think our collections give us an opportunity and, and also the connections that we have with both community scholars in various places in, in, in California and academics all over the country that I think can really enliven the interpretation of these things. Yeah, I was joking with the director of our local zoo here in Fresno, and he was talking about different ideas to get more kind of 20s and 30s into the zoo. And he was talking about cocktail hour with the lions in the evening. You know, there's so <laughs> many different ways to different ways to think about how to reach different kinds of people. And I think whatever we can do to get them in the door, right, to get them face to face with the history is is what's important. Now, what are you currently working on with the Autry Museum? Can you catch us up a little bit on what's going on these days? So right now I'm working on an exhibition that's called Human Events, The View from Los Angeles. And it is it is going to be the Autry's contribution to the 2026 commemoration of the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And so our working logic is, or our kind of argument is, that seeing American history, seeing this span of American history and the promise of this founding document from Los Angeles is going to make that history look really different. And so what we're going to be doing is thinking outward from Los Angeles in kind of concentric cir circles, the view from Los Angeles, eastward, northward, southward, westward, all the way to 1776 and beyond in order to reframe American history from a Western point of view. Josh and Amanda are going to be doing most of the work of curating objects and creating the museum display, and I'll be working with them on labels. And we we collaborate and we talk throughout the process of creating the exhibition, which you know has a hard deadline of opening of spring 2026 in time for this metric moment and for the commemorations. I'm working on an edited volume that'll be called Human Events that is a getting a series of Western historians to reflect on different phrases in the Declaration as touch points for episodes in American history that reframe American history from the West. So, for example, I want to write a piece using the phrase self-evident that takes the kind of traditional argument about women's suffrage as the march of liberty across the American continent that first takes root in the West, but really showing that there's nothing self-evident about why that happened there in the first place, because it's been a mystery. People have been have, having a very, very hard time solving until you really take into account the way in which the introduction of voting rights for women was used as a, as a tool to try to conquer American space. So, you know, there's not really anything self-evident about this. And I, 
Others will be choosing the word liberty or choosing the phrase merciless Indian savages, which is in the declaration, to reframe moments in American history that will make that history not look like it has been narrated throughout much of our history, which is this progressive march of liberty and justice for all. Hmm. Well, we're both excited and disappointed that it's so far away but we'll keep our calendars updated. Let's close with my favorite section, which is book recommendations. What are three books you'd recommend to listeners that are interested in these subjects or adjacent subjects? I'm thrilled to be able to do this. So the first one that I want to recommend is Elliot West's Continental Reckonings. Oh gosh, I just finished that. That was that was just a masterpiece of just synthetic history. I just I was blown away by its scope and its readability, but go on. I think, well, I mean, you've just said what I mean to say about that book. And you can open that book to any place, find yourself riveted to it. It is a monster book. It's actually under my computer here. I would pull it out and show it to your your viewers. But, you know, 800 pages of just remarkably divine research. And really, I consider Elliot West to be the rest, best writer working in the field of American history today. He is, he has a Mark Twainian sense of humor. He has a, an exquisite sense of irony and tragedy that can go along in American history. He has a perfect eye for an anecdote and he understands the sweep of American history in a way that I think nobody else does. There's another book coming out in that same series, from the University of Nebraska Press, Sarah Deutsch's Making the Modern West. I have just gotten an advanced copy of this. I think it is wonderful. I think it is on the scale and of the same kind of originality and with the same kind of insight. I strongly recommend that. And then there's a previous book in that series. And I'm recommending synthetic books here just because I think that's the kind of thing that people can dig in anywhere from this stuff. But Anne Hyde's Empires, Nations, and Families would be the, the third book that I think people need to read because it will totally turn your understanding of the conquests of the American West inside out and show it from the point of view of the of actual individuals and networks of people that really were kind of critical to a much more complicated narrative of, of American history. And so those are my three recommendations. Wonderful. To close, where can people find what you're working on online? And are besides the Autry exhibit, are there any projects kind of in the future for you? Besides the Autry exhibit, I'm, but I, I have a, a second life as a novelist. I published a series of, of contemporary mystery novels about a woman professor in the American West. There are four of them from HarperCollins under the name of Virginia Swift. So if you want a different side of me, that is, I don't know, what should I call it? My, you know, my secret past life or something like that. Well, that's a perfect thing. Like it's summer, you know, beach reads, right? You know, exactly. there's nothing like a good mystery on the beach. Trashy novels for the beach. Yeah, for hanging around on the beach. <laughs> and then the I'm also working on a historical novel that is set in the time of the French Revolution, where four girls meet at a convent school in Paris and their lives are forever changed. And two of them are American girls. They are the two daughters of the deputy minister to France from the United States. And one of them is enslaved and one is free. And so they're they're grappling with that while the French Revolution is breaking out around them, along with a a couple of a French girl and an English girl. So that's uh, that's the project I'm working on apart from just doing the fun stuff I get to do with the Audrey. Wonderful. Well, thank you for talking to me. This has been so fun. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by either giving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time.